This is a special report from American Radio Works, Corrections, Inc. I'm Deborah Amos. Over the past two decades, America's prison population doubled, then doubled again, before finally leveling off at about two million inmates. One result, a $50 billion a year corrections industry. That's bigger than tobacco. The annual trade show sponsored by the American Correctional Association is like other big trade shows, a sprawling bazaar of colorful display booths. This one fills a huge hall at the Pennsylvania Convention Center in Philadelphia. It brings together shoppers, mostly prison administrators, and hundreds of vendors hawking their wares. My name is Rick Hamilton. I'm with American Fence Company out of Phoenix, Arizona. Michael Hines, I'm with Sprint. Providers of inmate telephone systems and... Uniforms, janitor services, those steel doors and powerful locks. DuPont shows off a new lightweight protective vest just for prison guards. And then there's the eye-catching boss chair. With its wires and straight back and gray finish, it looks electric. But it's not what you think, explains David Turner, of Ranger Security Technologies. See, body orifice security scanner. So we're looking for handcuff keys, razor blades, small shanks, etc. So basically, the person sits down in the chair. They have any uh, metal contraband in the vaginal or anal cavity. Gives you an audible as well as a visual alarm. You can get a boss chair for five thousand dollars. On its website. The Correctional Association points to the $50 billion spent each year to run the nation's prisons and jails. And it warns companies, don't miss out on this prime revenue-generating opportunity. The crackdown on crime has enriched corporations that build prisons or sell products to them, prison guard unions, and police departments that use budget-fattening incentives to pursue drug criminals. In this special report, American Radio Works correspondent John Bewin explores how some groups with vested interests work to influence public policy, helping to keep more people locked up longer. Think of it. Two million prisoners eat six million meals a day. Uh, my name is Jim Carroll. I'm with Canteen Correctional Services. We provide food services and commissary services to correctional facilities around the country. Inmates get sick. Jim Tenney, I'm with Correctional Medical Services. We uh, provide uh, comprehensive medical care in jails and prisons on a contract basis. Prisoners exercise and kill time in the game room. Brian Wexler, I'm Vice President of Sales and Marketing with Quality Table Games. We sell a lot of sporting goods, board games, puzzles to prison facilities. Outside the convention center in Philadelphia, a few hundred people block traffic for a peaceful march through Center City. These protesters say a powerful web of private and public interests, the prison industrial complex, perpetuates the war on crime for money. We are no longer asking, we are demanding. No more making money off of the flesh of other human beings. Some conventioneers with the Correctional Association seem bemused at the notion that they're causing people to get locked up. I think it's Halloween in Philadelphia, man. <laughs> Ray Zarufi watches protesters dressed in striped inmate costumes. His company supplies prison commissaries. The prisoners got to eat? Do they got to shave? Somebody got to sell that to the state to put in those jails and the prisons, right? Zarufi has a point. Just because people make a profit from prisons, that doesn't mean there's a corrections lobby that works to drive up the inmate population. 
Certainly other forces helped to do that. Crime soared in the 1970s and 80s. Many Americans were alarmed. The problem of crime, one as real and deadly serious as any in America today. Politicians from both parties seized the issue and held on tight for two decades. And for enforcement of tough sentences. More prisons, more prevention, 100,000 more police. Sure, when it snowed prison-related contracts, businesses flocked to grab them. But do they also try to boost demand for their services? To say how much of a pleasure it is to be with all of you here in New York City for Alex's 28th annual conference. Tennessee State Representative Steve McDaniel welcomes a luncheon audience of a thousand at the Marriott Marquis in Times Square. The American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, is not well known to the general public and doesn't try to be. It does boast of helping to pass hundreds of state laws every year, from tax cuts to longer prison sentences. As all of you know, ALEC plays a vital, if understated, role in shaping our nation's agenda. We are the unsung heroes of American public policy. More than a third of the nation's state lawmakers, 2,400 of them, are members of ALEC. Most are Republicans and conservative Democrats. ALEC says its mission is to promote free markets, small government, states' rights, and privatization. The featured lunchtime speaker is Tommy Thompson, the former Wisconsin governor and now the Bush administration's Secretary of Health and Human Services. Thank you so very, very much. I appreciate it. I love you. Thank you. It's great to be a conservative, isn't it? Members gather at ALEC meetings to swap ideas and form model legislation. Legislators then take those bills home and try to make them state law. Thompson was an ALEC member in his days as a state rep in Wisconsin. Myself, I always loved to go to these meetings because I always found new ideas. And then I'd take them back to Wisconsin, disguise them a little bit, and uh, declare that it's mine. Informing and spreading its ideas, ALEC gets help from corporate leaders. More than 100 companies co-sponsor ALEC conferences, including Turner, a construction giant and the number one builder of prisons, and Wacken Hut Corrections, which runs private prisons. Another 200 companies and interest groups join ALEC as private sector members. They pay dues for the privilege of helping to write ALEC's model bills. The result is corporate-sponsored legislation, says Edwin Bender of the National Institute on Money in State Politics. When you look at the sponsor list, Bear Corporation or Bell South or GTE or Merrick, a pharmaceutical company sitting at a table uh, with elected representatives, actually hammering out a piece of legislation behind closed doors. I mean, this isn't open to the public. And then that then becomes the basis on which representatives are going to their state legislatures and debating issues. Alex's corporate members include at least a dozen companies that do prison business, like DuPont and the drug companies Merck and GlaxoSmithKline, telephone companies that compete for lucrative prison contracts, and Corrections Corporation of America, or CCA. It dominates the private prison business, building and running prisons and renting cells to governments. Louise Green is a CCA vice president. Presently, we have about 55,000 inmates who are housed in our care. We have 65 facilities in 21 states and in Puerto Rico. Alex's corporate memberships go for $5,000 to $50,000 a year. Neither the company nor Alec will say how much CCA pays. 
Green says belonging to Alec gives the company a chance to educate state lawmakers. If those states and counties have considerable overcrowding in their jails and prisons, that partnering with a private corrections company uh, can realize cost savings to their taxpayers and uh, we can offer effective programming for their inmates. But CCA does more than chat with lawmakers at ALEC meetings. On top of its membership, the company pays $2,000 a year for a seat on ALEC's criminal justice task force, which writes the group's model bills on crime and punishment. The committee promotes state laws letting private prison companies operate. And at least since the early 1990s, it has pushed a tough-on-crime agenda. Alex staffer Andrew Lefevre says crime task force members led the drive for more incarceration. And really took the forefront in promoting those ideals and then taking them into their states and talking to their colleagues and getting their colleagues to understand that if you know, we want to reduce crime, we have to get these guys off the streets. Among Alex's model bills, mandatory minimum sentences, three strikes laws giving repeat offenders 25 years to life, and truth in sentencing, which requires inmates to serve most or all of their time without a chance for parole. Alec didn't invent any of these ideas, but it's played a pivotal role in making them law in the states, says Bender of the National Institute on Money and State Politics. By uh, Alec's uh, own admission and its 1995 model legislation scorecard, they were very successful. They had introduced 199 bills. They had the Truth and Sentencing Act become law in 25 states. That right there is, is fairly significant. By the late 1990s, about 40 states had passed versions of truth in sentencing similar to Alec's model bill, helping to push up state prison populations even while crime rates fell. The result? More demand for private prison companies like CCA. In Wisconsin, a group of lawmakers led passage of truth in sentencing in 1998. Uh, Many of us, myself included, were part of ALEC. Republican Uh, State Representative Scott Walker authored the Wisconsin bill. Clearly, ALEC had proposed model legislation, and probably more important than just the model legislation, had actually um, put together reports and such that that showed the benefits of uh, truth in sentencing and showed the successes in other states. And uh, those sorts of statistics were very helpful to us uh, as we pushed it through when we passed the final legislation. But a former head of Wisconsin's prison system, Walter Dickey, says it's shocking that lawmakers would write sentencing policy with help from ALEC, a group that gets funding and supposedly expertise from a private prison corporation. Well, I don't know that they know anything about sentencing. Uh, They know how to build prisons, presumably, since that's the business that they're in. As disturbing as anything is, they don't know anything about probation and parole. They don't know about the development of alternatives. They don't know about how public safety might be created and defended in this state and in other states. The Wisconsin Department of Corrections says the truth in sentencing law will add to the state's prison population in the years to come. That's money in the bank for Corrections Corporation of America, the company that sits on the committee that wrote Alec's truth in sentencing bill. Wisconsin is a CCA customer. Its prisons are overcrowded, so the state houses more than 3,000 inmates at CCA facilities in Minnesota, Oklahoma, and Tennessee. The price tag, more than $50 million a year. Representative Walker says he took into account that CCA and some other ALEC sponsors might have a vested interest in the truth and sentencing bill. So oftentimes as a legislator, I mean, that's your great challenge is trying to 
weed through what everybody's hidden agenda is and, and figure out who's giving you credible information and in many cases playing one interest off of another to, to try and sort out what the truth is. More information to me is better. Still, Walker says he relied on an ALEC report that credited Virginia's truth in sentencing law with a five-year drop in the state's crime rate. But crime dropped in all states in the 1990s, whether or not they passed laws like truth in sentencing. The Corrections Corporation of America booth, with its black and yellow logo, has a prominent place at the Corrections trade show. Vice President of Customer Relations James Ball says CCA does not take an active role in writing or promoting Alex's model sentencing bills. You don't see CCA advocating for longer sentences. That's not true. Uh, and if government, through its elected representatives, identify that, well, we are going to need to provide for public safety by incarcerating individuals, uh, that is not a vendor-driven issue. Asked if giving money and time to the American Legislative Exchange Council doesn't constitute support for tough sentencing policies, Ball says ALEC is just a research organization and doesn't drive public policy. In fact, the group's stated mission is to drive public policy. The former Wisconsin Corrections Administrator, Walter Dickey, says he paid close attention to the debate over truth in sentencing in Madison. There was never ever any mention that Alec or anybody else had any involvement in this. Dickey says especially when society is debating how to make the streets safe and what it means for the punishment to fit the crime, profit has no place in the discussion. As I used to tell the troops when I was working in corrections, we lock the door, uh, we deny people autonomy and freedom, most cherished uh, things in American life. And to discover that there's a group pushing criminal justice policy because it's a way to make money is very disappointing to me. This is Corrections, Inc., a special report from American Radio Works. I'm Deborah Amos. This bus station in New York City has a specialized route to the federal and state prisons around New York. For many families, these buses are the only way to visit their loved ones in prison. How often do you go up? Well, once a month, more or less. And you take the kids? Yes, I do. How long has he been in? Uh, two and a half years. Um, he'll be in for another um, 11 years. It's not very easy. It is always crowded here. Over the last 20 years, drug offenders have been the fastest growing segment of the prison population. The trend picked up speed during the crack epidemic of the 1980s, when policymakers lengthened prison sentences for drug criminals and called for stepped-up enforcement efforts. They also handed police and sheriff's departments a tangible incentive to focus on drugs. New laws allowed police to supplement their budgets using assets they'd seized in drug operations, cash, homes, cars, boats, and airplanes. Some critics say this has created a conflict of interest by giving police agencies a financial stake in the war on drugs. Correspondent John Bewin has part two of our report on criminal justice policy and money. 995, 444, you have traffic? If you drive Interstate 35 through Osage County in the Flint Hills of southeastern Kansas, chances are you'll pass Sheriff's Deputy Wally Long. But this is what I mainly do for eight hours a day, is drive the highway and enforce the traffic code. 
Long has a barrel chest and a shaved head. From his well-equipped squad car, he'll clock your speed, eye that little registration sticker on your license plate, and check for any swerving. 995, 16, 1044. Given any justification, he'll pull you over. This is a brown Pontiac with Texas plates. Hi there, how are you? Running just a little bit faster today. Checked at 85. The car was in a cluster with other vehicles, so Long wouldn't be able to prove in court that his radar hit on the Pontiac. Not a big deal. I'm just going to give you a warning today on speed, okay? Do you have your driver's license or insurance with you? Yeah. The driver is a 30-ish Hispanic man with an older woman, his mother visiting from Bolivia, he says. And is this your car? Yeah. Your car? Okay. Yeah. And where did you say you were going? To Kansas. Kansas City? Yeah. I want to take you up there. The young man's answers are specific. He names a man he and his mother are going to visit, an old friend from her days as an exchange student 30 years ago. The driver volunteers that he's a stockbroker with Fidelity Investments. Okay. I live in Dallas. I'm a legal resident. I'm, I'm a green card. That's good. I'm married with an American citizen, so everything's in order. Long keeps the man parked on the shoulder for more than 20 minutes. He runs checks on his driver's license and car. Then he probes one of the Pontiac's body panels that he says looks like it's been removed. Has anybody worked on your car, put a stereo in it or speakers or anything? No? Would a book have to take a quick look in here? Take a quick search of the car, looking for drugs, alcohol, guns? You, you don't have to let me search, but if you allow me to search, I'm just going to take a few minutes to get you on down the road here. If you don't want me to search, I'm going to ask my partner to come up with his dog. He can do an exterior sniff of the vehicle and we can get you out of here. It's up to you, whatever you want to do. Oh, I mean, it's fine. As, as soon as we leave the bed. Okay. okay. Long searches, but finds nothing. He finally lets the man and his mother go. And I'm 10-12. But Long says once or twice a month, he finds a good-sized shipment of drugs or money. While working for another Kansas county a couple of years ago, Long hit the jackpot when he stopped a speeder. He was really nervous. Uh, I asked him where he was coming from, and he was uh, almost unable to recall where he was coming from because he was trying to make, think up a lie. And he kept saying, um, um, um. Long searched the car and found a laptop computer bag stuffed with $400,000 in cash. He had no idea where the, where the money came from. He, uh, he thought that uh, somebody must have left it in there that had rented it before him. Signed a disclaimer, and uh, the money was forfeited. The driver wasn't charged with a crime. Long says there was no evidence against him besides the cash. Most of the 40,000 asset seizures made by police every year go uncontested. Police consider that virtual proof they're taking drug money. When Long makes a seizure, the county sends a fraction of the proceeds to the state or federal government to cover paperwork. The local sheriff's department keeps what's left, 80 or 85 percent. I can tell you this, I have never been instructed by anybody that I've done criminal interdiction work for to go out and seek out only money. That's not what it's about. It's about putting bad guys in jail, putting criminals in jail, and criminals occasionally have money. Do you think that Osage County would devote a deputy full-time to this kind of activity if it didn't, in effect, pay for itself? Yeah, that, that would be an administrative question. Yeah. <laughs> An administrative question for Long's boss, Osage County Sheriff Ken Lippert. He works in a cramped office with plywood paneling. 
He says he's had a deputy patrolling I-35 full-time since the early 1990s. Seems like we seize anywhere from 40 to 60 or $80,000 worth, mostly cash a year. He alludes to an old TV comedy sketch. That was a guy from Puerto Rico or Cuba or something that said baseball's been very good to me while I-35's been very good to us. Lippert says the proceeds from seized cash and the seized cars the county auctions off are a modest but much-needed supplement to his million-dollar budget. He's spent forfeiture money to equip his squad cars with laptop computers, video cameras, and the latest radar. He bought and remodeled an annex building for his investigators. And the sheriff uses seized money, matched with a federal grant, to pay Deputy Long's salary. What he's doing down there doesn't cost the local taxpayers anything. So that question again. What if Lippert were not allowed to keep the proceeds of seized assets for his own budget? We probably uh, wouldn't be uh, working the interstate like I-35 like we do now. Asset forfeiture is nothing new. In the 1700s, the U.S. government seized boats from pirates and from shippers who didn't pay their customs duty. But forfeiture wasn't widely used in modern times until 1984. Congress passed a law that year that, in effect, said to state and local police agencies, when you conduct a drug operation, you can keep most of the assets you seize and use the money to supplement your budget. It was Congress's intention to take the financial incentive out of crime. John Roth heads the U.S. Justice Department's Asset Forfeiture and Money Laundering section. He says the 1984 law was meant not only to hurt drug traffickers by taking their profits in their vehicles, but also to motivate police officials to go after drug criminals. If there is asset forfeiture, people are going to be more vigorous in uh, attempting to seize money. We think, you know, under the appropriate circumstances and with the appropriate controls, that's a good thing because there is a significant law enforcement purpose behind this. Among the nation's law enforcers, the effect of the 1984 law was like someone throwing a switch. Asset seizures jumped 20-fold to more than half a billion dollars a year by the early 90s. At the same time, the federal government was making grants to create drug task forces. Drug arrests shot up everywhere, including rural Kansas. Shower here if necessary. At the Osage County Jail, Sheriff Lippert says eight of his 15 inmates are here on drug charges. Along the row here where the single cells are uh, is also a day room where they have a television set and so on. Get out of the doorway! The sheriff says a lot of crime in Osage County is tied to the proliferation of methamphetamine labs. He says the money Deputy Long seizes on I-35 helps his department go after local dealers like the ones in his jail. Three, four, well, I guess five of them are direct work from our two narcotics investigators. They were arrested on search warrants and so on. Lippert says proceeds from seized assets helped him create two new drug investigator positions on his now 10-member force. Law enforcement agencies themselves have become addicted to the seizure of property. Joseph McNamara is a former police chief in Kansas City and San Jose and now a research fellow with the Hoover Institution. Law enforcement agencies are constantly under budget pressure, and this is sort of a gift. And in some cases, the emphasis on seizing property can 
overshadow the emphasis on enforcing the law. McNamara remembers a time in the late 1980s when the San Jose city manager drew up a tentative budget for his 1,100-member police department. The budget line for equipment was marked zero. McNamara asked the city manager why. And he just laughed and he waved his hand and he said, last year you guys seized $4 million uh, in drug seizures and I expect you to do better this year and you can buy all of the equipment that you need and in fact your job performance will be evaluated on the fact that you seize more money than you did last year. McNamara and other critics say the hunger for cash through seized assets leads to racial profiling, which is usually linked to interdiction efforts on highways. Some say it also causes misplaced priorities, too much pursuit of low-level drug couriers and users, like Jerry Gober. We used to do some commercial cabinets, but we don't do much anymore. Jerry Gober proudly shows off his woodworking shop in suburban Sugar Hill, Georgia. He employs about 15 people making cabinets for home builders around Atlanta. I've been doing cabinets about 25, 26 years. Gober insists he's never sold drugs. He does have a history of marijuana use and addiction to methamphetamine. But as a condition of his divorce in 1996, Gober had to take monthly drug tests in order to visit his children. He'd passed one on the morning of his arrest. He says he'd been clean for several months. It wouldn't have happened. I wasn't out looking for drugs that day. But Gober's girlfriend at the time, Yvonne, called him and urged him to buy some meth for both of them from a dealer she knew. Gober says he and Yvonne were having a rocky time, but he didn't know she'd gone to the Gwinnett County Police and offered to act as a paid informant. We wouldn't get along that good and everything, and she didn't get along with the kids too good. And I told her she had to move out, and that pretty much made her mad. I guess was what made her decide to try to get me in trouble. Yvonne was helping the police set up Gober for a reverse sting. In a traditional drug sting, undercover cops pose as drug buyers to bust a dealer. In a reverse, the cops become the seller and arrest the buyer. Reverse stings used to be rare, and even now not all police departments do them. Don Peavy heads the law firm representing Gober. In the 1970s, Peavy worked undercover drug cases as an officer with the Gwinnett County Police. He says he first heard of reverse stings in a discussion with the local district attorney. He said, I've heard that uh, in some of these states and some other, other jurisdictions they're doing reverse stings where the police are selling drugs. And he told us in the, in the vice squad then, he says, don't do it because I'm not going to prosecute it. Particularly if these people are addicted, they're easy targets, and they, you know, they can't help themselves. And uh, you could, we could do them every day and fill up the jail, but we wouldn't be stopping the problem with drug abuse and drug use. Police departments started doing more reverses after asset forfeiture came into vogue in the 1980s. The traditional sting has no payoff. The police seize drugs and destroy them. In a reverse, the target brings cash the police can seize. Now, back to our story. Jerry Gober's girlfriend, a police informant, calls him about a meth connection. Well, she told me it was her cousin that had it. I I think she started out with like two ounces. Gober said no to Yvonne three times. She kept calling back, lowering the amount of meth and the price. And then the fourth time she called back, it was an ounce for 
It was $1,000, which I think is probably half the price. The Gwinnett County police say $1,000 for an ounce of meth is not a bargain. It's the going rate for traffickers. Gober says he'd never bought a whole ounce before that day. In any case, he gave in to his girlfriend's pleading, he says, and to his own addiction. He got $1,000 cash and went to meet the dealer, actually an undercover cop, in a Kmart parking lot. I got in truck with him, and I gave him the money, and he handed it to me, and then several police rushed toward me. The police captured the takedown on video. The police seized Gober's SUV and his money. The detective counted it for the video. In my hand here is a thousand dollars. One, two, three, four. The police first charged Gober with trafficking because he'd tried to buy an ounce of meth. By Georgia law, a trafficking amount. If convicted on that charge, he'd have gone to prison for ten years. But he got lucky. Some of the powder spilled during the arrest, so the district attorney reduced the charge to possession. Gober spent just 30 days in jail and a year in house arrest. Because of technical mistakes by the police, he even got his car and his $1,000 back. Still, Gober and his lawyers argue the Gwinnett County Police, motivated by asset seizure, created a crime. I mean, I admit, I shouldn't have been there to start with. You know, I made a mistake. But... After they called the first time, I said, no, I think that should have been it. I don't think they should have pushed it after that. Especially the second, third, you know, they called me four times before I said, yeah. Gwinnett County District Attorney Danny Porter says the fact that police created an opportunity for Gobert to break the law doesn't make him any less guilty. If you possess a controlled substance, if you sell it, if you manufacture it, if you possess it with intent to distribute, you're in violation of the law, period. That's it. Porter says the police in this big suburban county seize, on average, $600,000 in cash and vehicles every year. He insists the police would do reverse stings even if the operations didn't yield cash for the department. Then again, he says the narcotics squad headed by Major Rick Edmonds can afford to do reverses because they bring in money. Because when you pretend to be a drug dealer, you gotta you gotta pretend all the way, and you gotta show up with all the toys, and you gotta be you gotta be the guy. And and if we didn't have the forfeiture statutes, I, I I find it more difficult to believe that Major Edmonds could go up to the chief of police and say, you know, we need to rent a, a, a fancy SUV for this case that is not gonna that's gonna net us a, uh, an arrest. I, I suspect we'd have a a harder time with that. So certainly forfeiture has some inducement, but we don't do it just for the money. Some critics of asset forfeiture say to remove what they consider a conflict of interest, seized assets should go to general government coffers, not to police agencies. Every time someone proposes such a measure, law enforcement officials complain loudly. In Kansas, a couple of state lawmakers want to redirect asset forfeiture proceeds to the school system. Here's what Osage County Sheriff Ken Lippert thinks of that idea. I don't see the schools out there and all kinds of weather in a patrol car and with a gun and a badge trying to take the dope away from these people like my guys are. I kind of feel like it's it's law enforcement money because we're out there earning it. Hi there. I'll tell you the reason I stopped you. I couldn't see that you had a tag on your vehicle. I could see you had something up there, but I couldn't read it because the windows were smoked. You have the, the paperwork for the vehicle? Where are you guys headed to? 
Okay. What takes you up there? What kind of job do you do? Boilermaker? Yeah. Work for the union? Each year, police make about one and a half million drug arrests and seize five or six hundred million dollars in assets. People who applaud the war on drugs and those who have doubts about it agree on this. Police and sheriff's departments would not have waged the war with the same vigor over the last decade and a half if not for asset forfeiture. Still to come, the prison guards of California. Their politically powerful union gives new meaning to the job of keeping prisoners behind bars. It lobbies hard for tough-on-crime laws. I find it um, not appropriate, in my humble opinion, for them to try to make sure that the prison population stays large. I'm Deborah Amos. Major funding for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and members of Minnesota Public Radio. Corrections, Inc. is supported in part by a grant from the Open Society Institute. To learn more about money and the politics of criminal justice, visit our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. You'll find slideshows, statistics, and links. You can also find an archive of American Radio Works documentaries and learn how to order a cassette copy of this program. That's AmericanRadioWorks.org. You're listening to Corrections, Inc. Our report continues in just a moment from NPR. This is Corrections, Inc., a special report from American Radio Works. Like any big industry, Corrections is a major employer. More than 600,000 Americans work in a prison or jail, about as many as work for an airline. The majority of prison workers are guards. Come on, man, pick them boots up, come on. In California, the guards union has become one of the most powerful and politically aggressive interest groups in the state. Correspondent John Bewin has the final segment in our special report on money and the politics of criminal justice. A spring day in Sacramento. They're representing from families to amend three strikes. Come forward. In a crowded state assembly hearing room, a middle-aged woman with red hair steps to the podium. Thank you for this opportunity. My name is Vivian Moen, and I'm from Fountain Valley, California. And my son was sentenced under the three strikes law for simple drug possession, 25 years to life. Vivian Moen works at a hotel as a hospitality coordinator. Her son, Doug Rash, is 35 and a drug addict. Moen says he got his first two strikes in the 1980s for burglary. His first strike was taking a music keyboard from his father's house and pawning it. His stepmother thought that she would press charges, hoping that he would get some help with his drug problem. Strike two, a friend of his had broke up with his girlfriend and had still had a key to their apartment. He wanted his CDs back. So he went with them to the apartment to get the CDs. Her father arrived, had them arrested. Nothing was taken. That was his second strike. Then in 1994, Rash got caught with four-tenths of a gram of cocaine in his pants pocket. Strike three. Rash is now in a state prison, and he won't be free until at least 2014. I want to see how far we can get this line going so that we can get around this capital. It's later on the same bright morning. On the grounds at one end of the Capitol, a band of protesters calls for changes in the three strikes law. 
They wear black t-shirts and carry signs like Stop Filling Prisons with Nonviolent Offenders. There's a growing push in California by ballot initiative and in the assembly to limit the state's three strikes law to violent felons. California enacted the nation's first three strikes law in 1994 after several high-profile murders by repeat offenders. The law allows judges to give three-time felons 25 years to life with no chance for parole. In every other state that passed three strikes, only serious or violent crimes count as strikes. Not in California. Here, almost half of the third strikers locked up so far, more than 3,000 people, had nonviolent third strikes, drug possession, drug sales, petty theft. Uh, somebody that I love dearly has been sentenced to 25 years to life for a nonviolent felony, extortion of $800. Gabrielle Thompson of San Jose has changed her mind about three strikes. Uh, I voted for three strikes, and I had no idea the implications of what I was doing. Everybody was in a frenzy. It was a very emotional issue. And I think like the rest of the general public, we assumed it was going to affect murderers, child molesters, and it's a huge waste of our tax dollars and our resources. The opponents of three strikes have gotten a huge boost from recent court decisions that could affect hundreds of cases. Last fall, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled three strikes resulted in cruel and unusual punishment in the case of Leandro Andrade. He was sentenced to 50 years in prison with no chance for parole. His third strike, stealing $150 worth of videos from Kmart. In February, the court struck down two more three-strike sentences for offenders convicted of petty theft. But three strikes has powerful defenders in the governor's office, the assembly, and crime victims groups. They reject any efforts to soften the law. Follow the money behind California's tough-on-crime coalition, and one group looms startlingly large, the Prison Guards Union. Just around the corner from the anti-three strikes rally on the front steps of the Capitol. Would you please remain standing for the pledge to the flag? I pledge allegiance to the flag Don Novi is president of the California Correctional Peace Officers Association, the CCPOA. Every spring, the Prison Guards Union sponsors the Victims' March on the Capitol. A few hundred members of crime victims' groups sit in chairs arranged in neat rows on the Capitol lawn. Poster-sized photos of murder victims line the steps in front of the podium. On the grass, rows of white cardboard coffins. I would now like to have... Ms. Mindy Russell, please come forward and deliver the invocation. Mindy Russell is a police chaplain in Sacramento. Opening her Bible, she reads a passage from the book of Proverbs that perhaps captures this crowd's feelings about criminals. This is a description of worthless and wicked people. They are constant liars, signaling their true intentions to their friends by making signs with their eyes and feet and fingers. Their perverted hearts plot evil and they stir up trouble constantly. But, she reads, the wicked will be destroyed and broken beyond all hope. This demonstration has amenities, a big tent for those who want shade, and lunch. Lined up at the curb are charter buses that brought in rally participants from up and down the state. 
the prison guards union pays for everything. I have to say that CCPOA is gener very generous for us. They are our number one helper. 69-year-old Harriet Salerno heads Crime Victims United of California, a group devoted to public safety, that is, tough punishment for criminals. Salerno's daughter was murdered in 1979. The victims' movement is often called grassroots, but two prominent California victims' groups, the Doris Tate Bureau and Salerno's organization, owe their existence to the prison guards. I got a phone call from Don Novi to meet him in Sacramento at his office. She recalls her first meeting with the union president in 1990. And I said, well, at that time, you know, we victims don't have any support. I've been coming up to Sacramento as a bleeding heart mother trying to get legislation and nobody would listen. He said, okay, then, well, let us help you. And so we founded Crime Victims United of California together. And in fact, our headquarters is at the Correctional Peace Officers Foundation. This building has been here since 1992. Union Vice President Lance Corcoran, a former guard, gives a tour of CCPOA's two-story headquarters in West Sacramento. We've got the Correctional um, Peace Officers Memorial out front, our memorial wall, which lists the names of uh, every officer that's been killed in line of duty. In 1980, the union had a staff of four. Corcoran is now one of 90 employees. While the state's prison population ballooned over the last two decades, the union's membership grew more than tenfold, to 31,000. Their dues payments give the union a $22 million annual budget. We have um, two uh, in-house full-time lobbyists, and we employ anywhere from three to sometimes as many as six contract lobbyists. The CCPOA has emerged as one of California's biggest political donors. Its PACs have doled out almost $10 million since 1998. The union uses some of its clout on bread-and-butter issues. The average California guard now earns about $50,000 a year, almost twice the national average. That'll go up still more under a new contract pushed through the state Senate by Majority Leader John Burton and signed by Governor Gray Davis. The CCPOA has given millions to those two politicians. It spent $2 million just on Davis's 1998 election campaign. Lance Corcoran. A term that's used for CCPOA sometimes is that we're powerful. Um, powerful, I think, has sort of a negative connotation that we abuse that power in some ways. I think more appropriate term would be successful. We have successfully moved our agenda by supporting candidates that are willing to listen to our issues. Those issues include not only wages and training, but also tough-on-crime policies. Mr. Chairman, members, Jeff Thompson, on behalf of Crime Victims United of California, also with the CCPOA. Back at the state assembly hearing, the Guard Union's chief lobbyist argues against any softening of three strikes. We think the three strikes law has worked uh, extremely well. Uh, at least speaking from the experience in the prison system, we've seen a stabilization of our population as the true uh, habitual criminals have been incarcerated and off the street. Thompson gives three strikes a lot of the credit for California's 40 percent drop in crime since the law took effect. The law's critics point out that crime dropped about as much in some places that have no three strikes law, like the state of New York and Washington, D.C. In the hallway after the hearing, Thompson huddles with members of victims' groups. 
They're angry that the relatives of third strikers got most of the seats in the hearing room. We're the victims. Their husbands, their brothers murdered our family, and they're the victims. Thompson sends the victims' relatives to lobby assembly members against the three strikes reform bill. Thousands of union jobs are at stake in the battle over three strikes. If the law is not changed, a dozen years from now, California prisons will hold an estimated 15,000 aging third strikers, most of whom would have been released years earlier without the law. Back in 1993, the CCPOA was a leading funder of the campaign for three strikes. Democratic Assemblymember Jackie Goldberg of Los Angeles is sponsoring a bill to put three strikes reform on the November ballot. She argues the law has managed to survive this long, unamended, because of the prison guards. They're essential to it. First of all, they give enormous number of legislators donations in their campaigns. Uh, We, including myself, seek their support. The CCPOA gave $2 million to legislative campaigns in each of the last two election cycles. Its contributions to several assembly leaders were in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. The union gave Jackie Goldberg $5,000 two years ago. She opposes private prisons, as does the union, and she's pro-labor. But she says she's troubled by what she sees as the union's conflict of interest on sentencing issues. You know, I support the Correctional Officers Union, their right to organize, to decent pay and decent uh, working conditions. I, I, I find it not appropriate, in my humble opinion, for them to try to make sure that the prison population stays large, uh, if that's what, in fact, they're doing. The union is not trying to expand its membership, says the CCPOA's vice president, Lance Corcoran. I can't say it any more plain. I mean, I'll give you a copy of the purpose of the organization. Promote and enhance the correctional profession and protect the welfare of those engaged in it. And to advocate in the political arena for certain kinds of policies. Well, I think that's part of it. I think that's part of the entire mix. Corcoran argues the union's activism on crime policy is no different from that of, say, teachers' unions who lobby on education issues. If teachers know about the needs of students, prison guards are experts on criminals. Corcoran says guards and crime victims have a natural kinship because both feel firsthand the damage that criminals do. You know, and just because an individual sentenced to confinement doesn't mean that they haven't stopped victimizing individuals. Matter of fact, we now become, in many cases, the victims of their actions. The worst among us eventually end up here. The CCPOA commissioned this video a couple of years ago and bought time for it on several California cable channels. In it, guards at the Corcoran Maximum Security Prison tell of being assaulted by inmates without reason or warning. I mean, you're constantly on the lookout because inmates are trying to spit in your face or trying to throw feces on you. I've seen whole buildings erupt, violence. They see, unfortunately, the worst side of human nature, day in and day out, I think that skews their impressions. Assemblywoman Jackie Goldberg. I think it is unfair to say that they're just trying to make sure that they they have a job next year. I don't believe that. But I do believe that they have a skewed sense of reality. They create an environment in which policymakers lose sight of simple ideas like the punishment should fit the crime. 
the CCPOA's critics say in effect to state policymakers, ignore them, they're the prison guards. The union says to state leaders, you'd better listen to us, we're the prison guards. The battle goes on in Sacramento and across California. Okay, I'm Chana, I'm from San Diego. My husband's serving 25 to life for 0.05 grams of a controlled substance. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Don Novi, representing victims in California, hopefully. Today, the people behind us in this California's policy building, the Capitol, forget you, is the day the criminal element takes over in our society. It may be almost impossible to completely remove monetary motives from criminal justice policy and practice. In fact, though, money can cut both ways. To state leaders now trying to solve budget crises, all those overflowing prisons suddenly look expensive. Partly for that reason, some states have begun closing prisons or reversing the tough sentencing policies they passed in the last decade. Corrections, Inc. was produced by John Bewin. It was edited by Deborah George, coordinating producer Sasha Eslanian, mixing help from Craig Thorson and Tom Mudge, production coordinator Misha Quill, production assistants from Seth Lind, Barish Gumas Dawes, and Mark Holterhouse. The managing editor is Stephen Smith. Executive producer, Bill Busenberg. I'm Deborah Amos. Major funding for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and members of Minnesota Public Radio. Corrections, Inc. was supported in part by a grant from the Open Society Institute. For more on these issues, including photos and a reporter's notebook, visit our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. American Radio Works is the documentary project of Minnesota Public Radio and NPR News.